millions of people throughout the earth have never heard of Jesus. What happens to them when they die? A primary objection to Christianity concerns how unjust it would be if God required faith in the gospel of those who have never heard it. Does the Bible give a suitable and logical explanation for this dilemma? Find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Through the decades that I've been walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, I have many conversations with New Agers and people who subscribe to universalism and the belief that all religions are equally uh, relevant paths to the same ultimate goal. And quite often they ask me this question. In order to test the validity of Christianity, they say, what happens to all of the people who have never heard about Jesus? And quite often, people who subscribe to the Bible, who love the Lord Jesus, don't have a suitable answer to that question. And that is a legitimate query. It is a legitimate question concerning the biblical faith. So we're going to dig into it. Because billions of people, literally billions of people, have come into this world and left this world without ever being exposed to the gospel. So God is going to deal with those souls, but how is he going to deal with them? On what basis? First, let me define a very important term that I'm going to be using all through this podcast, and that is the word gospel. What is the gospel? What does the word gospel mean? It actually means good news. And it comes from a Greek word, euangelizo, that has been translated different ways in Scripture, and I'm going to cover a few. The root beginning of the gospel was the good news that was shared in the Garden of Eden right after the fall of Adam and Eve. And in that dark, dark place, there was only one ray of light, one little bit of good news. And that was the prophetic statement that the Lord made to the serpent, who was, I believe, an embodiment of Satan. And he said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Eve, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And of course, that was talking about the death of the Messiah on the cross. That's when he bruised the head of the serpent. Even though Jesus' heels were bruised when the nails went through his feet and hands, he received the wounds uh, that came as a result of his crucifixion. But in the process... 
He crushed the head of the serpent, which means he crushed his dominion, his power, his authority in this realm. That was the seed beginning of the good news, the gospel. The scripture also says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul's writings, that foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. What? I thought the gospel was all about Jesus. Well, that's the fullness of the revelation of the gospel. But God gave little puzzle parts on the way to the complete picture being formed when Jesus came. And he revealed himself to Abraham, and he told him, In you and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, all cultures, all races, all nationalities. In you and in your seed shall all people be blessed globally, worldwide. That was good news. And I'm sure Abraham wondered how it could come to pass. But it was that same promise trickling down, the initial promise that Eve would have an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. Now that works its way to Abraham, where God said, this promise I'm giving you of global impact, where blessing will come around the globe through your life. Well, that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the seed of Abraham. And that's why the Bible said the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Again, it was not the full picture, but it was a portion of the complete uh, revelation of what God was going to do. Now, the word gospel is expressed with additional words, different ways in the Bible. For instance, it's referred to as the gospel of peace, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, and it's also referred to as the everlasting gospel. Because the best part of this good news is the fact that it will lead you to the door of everlasting life. Praise God for that. Now, specifically, the first four books of the New Testament are referred to as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they tell the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yes, the entirety of the Bible includes the gospel message all through it, but specifically those four books are the ones that really draw the focus tight. Now, in the, the gospels, those four books, you find the revelation of the beginning of Jesus coming into this world. And you find this word, euangelizo, which is translated good news. But the first time is when the angel announced the birth of Jesus and said to the shepherds in the field, do not be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Well, that was another puzzle part. 
concerning this good news of the incarnation of God, God coming into this world in the form of a human being in order to save the human race, in order to deliver us from the power of sin. Now, when Jesus announced his ministry 30 years later in the synagogue at Nazareth, imagine that, God on earth in a human body for three decades, not really revealing who he is, and not unveiling to the masses the answers that they need. What patience, what an amazing mystery. But anyway, at the age of 30, he stands up to read scripture as his custom was on the Sabbath day. Every now and then it would come around to him as one of the men in the synagogue to read from the uh, books of the Old Testament. And he stood up and read from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And it's that same Greek word again. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the recovery of sight to the blind. And he's talking about not only physically healing the blind, but spiritually Opening, opening the blind eyes of those who can't see the truth, don't understand the way to get back to God. And he was actually quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, that was a prophecy of the Messiah to come, where Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And it's not just those who are poor in a financial or material sense, but those who have poverty of spirit, who are broken by the pressures of life heaped up on them, and they've just been crushed underneath it, and they're poor in spirit. They feel impoverished emotionally and mentally. Well, here's some good news. Jesus came to give you the peace that passes understanding and salvation and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the gift of righteousness and the gift of eternal life. All these are a part of the gospel, the good news that I have to share. So, I've established what the word gospel means. And of course, the question at the beginning of this podcast was, what happens to those who never hear the gospel? How is God going to deal with them? And it's a sad thing that billions of people have come into this world and left this world without knowing what was available to them. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 declares that God is a just God. And let me read the whole verse. It says, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. The thing I want to establish is that God would never deal with anyone unjustly. And it would not be just for God to condemn someone over something they were completely oblivious to or unaware of. That's not the way God deals with people. He is a just God and he is without injustice. It's such an important truth. It's emphasized in a positive and a negative way there. He is just and without injustice. Think of that. However, there is scripture that really paints a dark scenario for the human race. Let's go to John chapter 3. 
starting with one of the most beloved verses out of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now here's the key verse, and a disturbing verse, but it needs to be understood correctly. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, the implication of this verse, this passage, actually, all the verses together, is that the condemnation comes to those who are confronted with the light, but they recoil back into the darkness. They have an opportunity to enter the light of truth and let the light of truth enter their hearts, but instead they harden their hearts and refuse it and condemnation comes. However, it does say he who believes is not condemned. And so there's an immediate lifting of condemnation from a person's life when you embrace God's plan. And I've often said that all the religions of the world are men's effort to reach God or ultimate reality. But Jesus was God's effort to reach man. And there is a huge huge difference. Now, the complete Jewish Bible of verse 18 says it this way, those who trust in him are not judged. Those who do not trust have been judged already because they have not trusted in the one who is God's only and unique son. So, that seems to mean that you have to reject the light to receive the full condemnation of that particular declaration. Mark 16, 16 says it also this way, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe or refuses to believe or rejects what he hears and says, I won't believe it. He who does not believe will be condemned. One thing we need to establish though is that no one can be saved just by religious works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God, Paul said. So you can't do anything to become perfect enough to obtain salvation or liberation or enlightenment The Buddhists call it enlightenment, the Hindus call it liberation, and the Bible calls it salvation. And nobody can earn it. I was taught when I studied yoga that it may take several lifetimes of complete devotion to the study of yoga to finally be liberated from the cycle of rebirth, having achieved perfection and canceling out all negative karma. And that made it a very pressure-filled journey to try and reach perfection, to earn deliverance from the pain of this world. 
Another scripture that's really important is James 2.10. And I know I'm using a lot of Bible in this particular episode, but it's important to lay the foundation for those of you that don't embrace the Bible yet and look at things from a different perspective. Please go ahead and and go through these scriptures with me. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, Whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, He is guilty of all. See, there were 10 commandments, major commandments, and then all together in the law, which was a word in the Old Testament for the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you break one of those laws, it's like a mirror that's divided up into 613 parts and you just take a hammer and hit one little part, and it shatters the whole thing. Or a mirror divided into 10 parts, if you will, the 10 commandments, and if you break one, it's like hitting one, and it shatters the whole thing. Because that's the way it works. If you sin against God in any area, that establishes you in the status of being a sinner. He who keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. So again, it doesn't look like there's much hope for anyone in the human race if they have not heard of the gospel that provides forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that on the cross, he took sin upon himself. He became sin for us. He absorbed it into his body like a sponge and then suffered the consequence, which was death, because that's the ultimate outcome of sin. And he tasted death for every man. When he went into the grave, he went into the grave for you and for me and for everyone else that's ever been born or ever will be born. And when he came out victoriously, he conquered the curse that should have conquered us. So it's, that's why it's the only way. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God but by me. However, what if somebody's never heard of Jesus dying on a cross? What if someone's never heard of the Son of God rising from the dead? What if no one's ever heard that God came to earth in the form of a man? How does God deal with them? There is one ray of light in a very dark night. There is just one ray of light like shining down through the darkness to illuminate your life. And that is Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. If you are listening to these scriptures intently, listen even more intently now, because this is the pivot. This is the pivotal truth on which the whole podcast is turning. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Listen to it carefully. For as many as have sinned without law, and remember I told you what the law was. The law is a reference to the Torah. In fact, quite often in the Old Testament, the word translated law is Torah, and it means the first five books of the Bible. As many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. What does that mean? It means if they don't know about it, they won't be judged by it. 
As many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So if you know about it, you are obligated to live according to that that you know. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now here's the powerful part. For when Gentiles, and that's anyone outside of Judaism, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, Paul said. Now, let me break that down. So, what about some people that dwell in some far-off jungle region or people in a communist country, say, even now, that are not allowed to hear any kind of religion promoted, uh, if they've never heard the gospel, but they respond to their conscience. That's the only light they have. And God declares in this passage that that will be the means by which they are judged. Their conscience, or rather their response to conscience, will either accuse them or excuse them in the day when God judges the secrets of men. What are the secrets of men? It's the internal workings of your heart. It's the things that go in your mind that cause you to achieve or reach a certain decision, a choice, a goal in life. And you decide to go after evil or you decide to go after good, but it's a process. It's a thinking process. It's a heart process and a mind process. And when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things that are contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. In other words, they live by an ethical standard, a moral standard, because they're gripped in their hearts that that's how they should live, and they respond to that inner influence. That's what the conscience is. The conscience is that inward knowledge, that inward insight into what is evil and what is good, and it carries with it the desire to do that which is good, that which is right. I liken the conscience in human beings to a barely burning ember, where there used to be a raging fire in the hearts of Adam and Eve in the very beginning when they were in their perfect paradise state. Their conscience was fully alive, but then the fall came, and spiritual deadness came with the fall. And see, there's three parts to you. There's the spirit, the soul, and the body. The body is made up of flesh, bones, and blood. The soul is made up of mind, will, and emotions. And the spirit, the spiritual part of you, is made up of three functions, communion with God, revelation from God, and conscience. And see, when the fall took place, almost all of that became completely dysfunctional. There was no more communion with God. No person could decide by some kind of mystical formula or practice that 
I'm going to come into union with God. It's not your choice. There's a barrier because of man's fall, because of man's sinfulness. It's impossible to reach God by our own devices. That part of the spirit is dead. Communion with God is cut off. Revelation from God, for the most part, is cut off. You can't just decide you're going to understand the mysteries of the universe by using some kind of occultic method. That wall is there, that separating veil between heaven and earth. Eternity and time is there, impenetrable. If God decides to break through the veil, then it happens. The only thing that God left with fallen human beings was a barely alive conscience. In the Greek, the word that is translated conscience means to see completely. To see completely. And it implies that you see things from his perspective. It's a dual perspective. You begin to see things like God sees things, which is a very interesting thing. I'll I'll use a whole podcast sometime to just teach on the conscience. But when someone lives according to their conscience, and they don't know anything about the Bible, they don't know anything about the Word of God, they've never heard of Jesus, but they live according to their conscience, is it possible that somehow they will achieve eternal life through that? I don't think that's enough, but I do think it's a very strong part of a process through which God can redeem those who have never heard the word of God. Let me me take you to something called the resurrection. See, there are two resurrections. There are two resurrections, according to the Bible. Read Revelation chapter 20. The first resurrection happens when Jesus comes back again, and the dead in Christ rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so all those who have been born again, who have responded to the gospel, who have surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air if they're alive at the end of this age, or they'll be resurrected from the dead. But the Bible also talks about a second resurrection at the end of a thousand years. Now, that may be a literal millennium, and it may just mean an extremely long time. But it says in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 14, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works." The first resurrection is according to grace. God will instantly know at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in Christ. The dead in Christ shall rise first. So those who are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ in a covenant relationship will be a part of that resurrection. But 
we will not be judged according to our works. We will be judged according to our position in Christ and receiving salvation from him. At the end of the thousand-year millennial era, though, the great white throne judgment takes place, and that judgment is according to works. Everyone will be judged according to what they've thought, what they've said, and what they've done. Now, in that judgment, according to Romans chapter 2 that we read a few moments ago, verses 12 through 16, men will be judged according to their response to conscience, and conscience will either accuse them or excuse them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, once again, the conscience is about the only light in human beings. It's it's about the only light that we have in this dark world, and we need to guard it. We need to respond to it. We need to live according to its dictates. It is not the presence of God. This is very, very important. I misinterpreted the conscience as a spark of divine nature within me when I was a teacher of yoga 50 years ago, and that's what I taught. But it's not the presence of God in you. However, it is a gift from God to a fallen human race that will guide us back to union with him. I know my own experience prior to salvation. I had a near-death experience at the age of 18 that shook me up and made me start really examining my life. And I realized I was living a very egocentric life, self-serving life. And I felt badly about all the things I'd done that were not right, not the correct way to live. And I purged my life of all of that. I, I became a very, well, almost monastic-like person. I was living a completely separated life and a yoga ashram. All I did from 3.30 in the morning till 5.30 at night, month after month after month after month, was to use wrong methods, Hindu methods, yogic methods of praying and chanting mantras and and uh, meditating and doing everything that I was told I could do to come into God consciousness. And I lived a completely separated life. I never went to the movies. I never watched television. I never dated. I never uh, went to any kind of entertainment. I was totally involved seeking God 24-7. The only time I wasn't doing something like that was when I was asleep. And so I was responding to conscience. Even though I was not saved yet, I was not born again, it was leading up to that direction. See, I believe when Jesus rose from the dead, something really intense happened. There was a coup d'etat that took place. Up until that time, Satan was the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, and he ruled the planet. And of course, there's still a lot of darkness here, but when Jesus arose from the dead, he took back the authority of this realm. Jesus is now Lord of this world. Satan is still running rampant, and his days are numbered, and he will soon come under the full judgment of God. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit was released into the world, sent into the world. And Jesus said that when he went away, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. He didn't say he'll convict the church of sin. 
It said he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. See, I believe for almost two years leading up to the time I was saved, I was under conviction. The Holy Spirit was wooing and drawing me and making me feel horrible about carnal choices that I had made in my life and the immorality that had been in my life and the uncleanness that had been in my life and the wrong choices that led me down bad roads. But, but see, that happens to a lot of people. I believe there's a lot of Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists that start out being convicted by the Holy Spirit over their sins, and they want to live a better life. They want to live according to higher values, but the only religion accessible to them in their culture may be Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. And so what starts out as God working on their hearts, unfortunately, is not brought to completion because they turn aside into a worldview that does not lead them to the truth. And they go into a false religious system. Instead of going to the Bible, they go into the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran of Islam or the Sikh holy book, which is called the Adi Granth or the Tao Te Ching of Taoism. All those are supposedly sacred books, but the only one that contains the truth is the Bible. Some contain little glimmers of truth here and there, but the only one that is true in its entirety is the Bible. So if these people that are trying to do better, trying to be right, die in a state of spiritual ignorance, what happens? Is all hope gone? Before I can answer that, I've got to, I've got to tell you what happened between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Because this is very important. Psalm 16 prophesied of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to it. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. It was a messianic prophecy. It was about the Messiah to come, who's referred to as the Holy One. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Hmm. Now, the King James Version renders that hell, but it's not really a correct translation because hell is a word referring to a place of eternal torment just for the wicked. And in the original Hebrew, it was Sheol, and Sheol was the realm of both the righteous and the wicked dead in the lower parts of the earth. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. Now, Peter actually referred to that prophecy in the first sermon that was preached under the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. As he was preaching about what had just happened to all those in the upper room, how they were born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and how Jesus had risen from the dead, he talked about how his soul, his soul was not left in Hades. That's the the word in the New Testament, the Greek word, Hades, and the King James translates it hell again. His soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What is Sheol? What is Hades? What is this underworld? And why would I say it's not just for the wicked? Because Jesus shifted things drastically 
And prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, everyone went down into the lower parts of the earth. And we find that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I'm not going to read the whole parable, but in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, we read about a rich man who was a very corrupt person dying, and he ends up going into the realm of the wicked. And then this beggar that was laid at his gate, Lazarus, died, and he went into the realm of the righteous, which was called Abraham's bosom. And there was an impassable gulf between the two. The realm of the wicked was a realm of torment. The realm of the righteous was certainly a place of peace, but not the ultimate goal that God has for his redeemed people. And and so it becomes a very definite doctrine in Scripture that prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, there were two chambers in the lower parts of the earth. Why is that important? Because Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, talked about how Jesus, when he died, went down into the lower parts of the earth to lead captivity captive. Because there were people captivated because a proper atonement for sin had not yet been paid. The blood of bulls and goats was insufficient. And so they had temporarily taken care of the sin problem, but it was not yet enough for the full cleansing of the soul. And so he went down and preached in that realm. Now, we know that that took place because of several things. First of all, he told the thief on the cross that repented of his attitude of mockery. The, both of them initially were mock, mocking Jesus, and then one of them repented and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, this day you will be with me in paradise. And the word paradise is only found three times in the New Testament. And the other times, it is a reference to the third heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So when Jesus went down into the lower parts of the earth, something happened that, trans, uh, that, uh, that in a sense translated those that were in the lower parts of the earth up to the third heaven. He preached the gospel to them. See, there's that important word again, the good news. He preached the good news that through his death, burial, and resurrection, a price had been paid for mankind to be delivered. And there are scriptures that verify that. Let me take you to some of them. For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, it says, For Christ once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So, that verse makes it sound like not only did he preach in the realm of the righteous where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and all the people of the Israelite nation that had served God and loved God and obeyed God were waiting in Abraham's bosom, 
but he preached to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah and many other disobedient people as well. So he must have preached in the realm of hell. Isn't that amazing? What happened, we don't really know. We're not given too much information. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. In other words, that they might be judged for having heard the gospel, that they might be judged in their response to the gospel, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. No wonder Isaiah 44 verse 23 says, shout you lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing you mountains, O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Now that may or may not be a reference to what happened at that time when Jesus went into the lower parts of the earth. And you may say, well, can people really be delivered after they're dead? Well, these passages of Scripture prove that. And there's another proof in Scripture, and that's Jonah. Jonah wasn't just swallowed by a whale. Jonah died. Read Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 2 very carefully. Jonah chapter 2 is a 10-verse chapter, and eight of those verses is a prayer of gratitude, where Jonah is thanking God for having delivered him from the realm of the wicked. And again, that was in the Old Testament time. So when Jonah was thrown overboard, I believe he drowned, he died, and listen to what he said. Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol, again, being the underworld, where the realm of the wicked, the hellish realm of the wicked, and the realm of the righteous, called Abraham's bosom, were separated by an impassable gulf. Probably Jonah went to the side of the wicked. Is it possible that someone could be delivered from that? There are rare examples where that happens. I have two friends who died in an unsaved state, and they experienced the horror of that, and yet God spoke to them in a very profound way, and they came out, and God gave them an opportunity to serve him. So that indicates to me that if on a singular basis, if Jonah could be delivered, then what about the others when Jesus went into the lower parts of the earth? So how am I going to bring all of this to a conclusion? What am I going to say about those who have never heard the gospel? My conclusion is this, that it is possible. I'm not going to say an absolute definitive statement. I'm not going to say this is absolute definite truth, but it is quite possible as far as I'm concerned that if someone has never been acquainted with the Bible, never heard about the path to salvation, that they will be judged according to their response to conscience at the end of the millennial era when the great white throne judgment takes place? Will they still have to go through Jesus to be saved eternally? Absolutely. When Jesus went down into the lower parts of the earth, there were those who had lived according to the law who still could not go to paradise without accepting him as their savior. How all of that will happen, only God knows. But the thing I also know, even though the other is still a little cloudy and 
impossible to really sink your teeth in with absolute assurance. But there is one thing I can be absolutely assured of, that if you will give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will wash your sins away in his blood. You can be born again, spiritually awakened, spiritually reborn, given the gift of eternal life, and you can live in the presence of God forever in paradise. That I do know. The other is unsure. And so I would not depend on that. I will, If I were you, I would depend on what is absolute truth. And that's the statement Jesus made in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This has been a really long episode, but we've covered some really important truth. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar? And how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.